Hi, I'm Doyce Testerman. This is part three of the Hidden Things and Hidden Things, where we're talking mostly about chapter four and whatever I tangent off into. Question one, how disgusting does Josh's office smell right now? I have, in my questionably spent youth, had the opportunity to wake up in a room where very, very thin office carpet had had whiskey spilled on it and then warmed by the sun with greasy pizza in a small room. Uh, you know, it's not what you want to wake up to when you have a hangover or you're queasy in the stomach or anything like that. I, I, I feel very strongly that Lauren's comment about, I would throw up again is probably fairly accurate. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, you know, I don't, as I mentioned in previous comments, I, I don't enjoy the smell of whiskey very much myself anyway. So the idea of it being on a dirty carpet and allowed to soak in and then heat it up and all of those, that's a, it'd be pretty thick in there. So where is Vicus while all this stuff is going on? Vicus has retreated. What that means, I don't know. I don't know where he is right now. He's somewhere that's else. He's probably laying some groundwork for approaching Calliope again. Or he's watching it from across the street and just nobody notices because that's just how Vicus is. There's a couple things that happen here in terms of the characters. There isn't a lot of plot stuff that moves things forward because it's really just the cops sort of panicking a little bit about Lauren being missing. And, you know, they're driving around and thinking, well, what if this is some sort of conspiracy? What if it's about the whole family? What if it's both of them dead? Well, you know, and it's all, it's all BS. But, um, so plot-wise, not a lot of stuff goes forward, but some things happen where we find out some stuff about the characters and we get to see a few Calliope, especially in the first couple of sections of the story, of the story, like, uh, stage one and stage two, are, is not a particularly sympathetic character. She's not, well, that's not true, but she's not nice. She's definitely not a nice person. Um, she's not mean. But she's, she's definitely on the offensive. Um, this goes back to some stages of grief stuff. You know, stage one is denial. Stage two is anger. And I pretty much dove into that head first. Um, so in this scene, we see her waking up. And first thing she does is check Lauren, who they don't get along the best. But that's the first thing she does because she's concerned. The next thing she does when the door knock is, goes on, she defends Lauren. She, she acts as the gate guard, you know, the... the the gatekeeper for them getting into Lauren and also defending her right to, you know, go out and have, get a drink on, you know, get, get a good drunk rolling because of Josh. She actively makes some decisions about what she tells the cops and what she doesn't to make sure that the case stays on, on course. She comes from a, a band background, but she's been doing this now for two years and she has seen firsthand what happens if a little bit of what looks like a clue takes some guy who's investigating a case off on the wrong, in the wrong direction. She wants to make sure that that doesn't happen. So you get a sense both of the fact that she's willing to do stuff that's maybe not entirely on the up and up because she thinks it's going to be the best thing. And also the fact that she's got some knowledge and history of how this job gets done that informs us about what her level of experience is with this kind of stuff. So we learn a little bit more about Calliope and we see that she, even though she's a little bit harsh, she, she acts to protect those that she cares about. Lauren kind of vaguely fits within that um, circle because of Josh. And partly what she's doing is protecting Josh. She's making sure that the case stays on course. We also get a weird little cut away from the scene here in a pattern that you will find later is pretty straightforward, is pretty clear, is that we move to uh, Josh for a bit just for a bit. It's a little bit in the past, so it's a bit of a flashback. We will occasionally go to Josh present time, but mostly it's flashbacks. We get to find out more about his history, 
That always happens when Calliope is not awake. She sleeps. People who are grieving sleep a lot, which is convenient, but that isn't actually why I did it. I needed her to be asleep, so she slept. She also gets knocked out or, in this case, passes out fairly often. But I couldn't just keep clubbing her into unconsciousness. I didn't need her to be uh, punch struck by the end of the story. So there's a lot of stuff there. So we get to see a little bit of Josh. One of the things that I had in the flashbacks... First of all, there were a lot more of them, or rather they didn't follow a pattern. The reason I followed this pattern is because I was sort of having flashbacks happening all the time. Like whenever I just kind of felt like I need to, I need to write about this. So I just wrote about it. And this is the first couple drafts. I concentrated that because it was pretty distracting. It was, it was like George RR Martin, but on crack, like we would switch character POV all the time. And it was pretty bad. One of the things that you don't see in this story that I think this is one of my darlings I had to take out of the book and not, not because it made the story better, but because I simply couldn't afford the other option. There's a lot of, in the original draft, especially in the uh, cutscenes, stuff with Josh, there are excerpts of children's rhymes, what I think of as childhood rhymes. And unfortunately, due to the way copyright works, if I were writing this in London, I'd actually be in better shape because A.A. A. Milne's stuff is pretty much all in public domain over there, but it's not here. There's only like one small section of his stuff that is. So even some of the very earliest stuff, like like Now I Am Six, or Now We Are Six, or something like that, um, there's a couple of rhymes from there that I used and actually directly informed the scene that they either proceed or, or follow. And I had to take them out because they just wanted a bunch of money for it that I couldn't pay. What struck me as actually really weird is this particular scene was supposed to have part of the um, Where the Sidewalk Ends rhyme from Shel Silverstein. One of my you know, great loves from childhood. I, l- I love Shel's stuff. And the feedback that I got from Shel's estate was that they didn't feel that it was appropriate to have anything of Shel's poetry and something that was essentially had like horror elements in it or spooky stuff. Thus proving to me that they have never actually read anything he wrote because that is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. I personally think that Shell would, or Mr. Silverstein, or however I should be referring to him, would have really liked this story. And I think he probably would have really liked seeing some of the stuff in here. But the bit where Joshua is at the end of the sidewalk and there's sort of monstrous chalk drawings on it and it's right there at the gravel and stuff like that, I wanted the rhyme to be there. That's where it was originally at. And it's not there anymore. But imagine it, if you will. If you want, read a, a small section of it to yourself and then read this section and you'll have a general idea of what I was doing. But And I won't have to pay several thousand dollars to put the uh, four lines in it. I think there's one interesting thing here. And I, 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 one of the bits that I always find very curious about Calliope is she's a little bit split in her way of looking at the world outside when she's talking to people, Vicus is just this guy who came in and she kicked him in the chest and left. But we see her in her head, in her subconscious, referring to him as this homeless guy who uses magical Hungarian to knock out Lauren. Somewhere in the back of her head where she's not editing herself, she has already accepted the fact that this weird thing happened. Or at least is treating it as though that's what happened until she knows something better. She saw it. She trusts her senses and she went on. This goes back to one of my pet peeves about a lot of urban fantasy, certainly, but even any situation where somebody from a mundane setting is suddenly dropped into a unusual situation and proceeds to like live in denial for nine tenths of the book drives me crazy. And it has ever since I was a kid. 
every book I've ever read that did that, it just made me so angry because I like, I want to like the main character and they're being stupid. There's stuff happening. This dragon is flying. Just deal with it for God's, you know, Thomas Covenant is a good example of that. I'm not a big Thomas Covenant, but he pretty much goes through the entire thing convinced that it's some sort of hallucination, which drives me just batty. And uh, not that I've read all of Thomas Covenant because I like myself better than that. All due respect to the author, he's a hell of a he, he's a hell of a craftsman, but it's it's not a story that I enjoy. Um, so I wanted Calliope to kind of accept this. Now, part of that, I'm also she is in denial right now about a lot of things, and that's fine. But we don't go very far into this story much. We don't go much further into the story before she's kind of confronted with the situation, just straight in her face. And she has to go, okay, fine. And, we, and we're done with that whole thing where she's like, oh, this isn't, I'm sure that this is, there's all a rational, no, there's not a rational explanation for it. This crap is just weird. And it's going to continue to be weird and possibly get weirder. And she accepts it. And that at least makes me like her a little bit more because she's not being a denialist idiot. We heart Calliope for that reason. Okay. So next time, what's next time? Mm, next time we've got a whole bunch of stuff going on, but we have a little bit of a, Ooh, yeah. We get to see a little bit of more of Callie and Josh from back in the day. We don't go way back with them, but we go back a little bit. We find out a little bit more about, uh, Calliope and her joining, uh, Josh in this wacky, detective agency thing here a little adventure and we actually have a really i think we're going to get to this part in the next section but there's a conversation with uh calliope and uh detective johnson who i really like he's one of my he's he's a challenge for me to read sometimes but he is when i expanded on hidden Th on the original hidden things draft and made it a little bit larger i got to spend more time with johnson which was a huge benefit for me because I, I enjoy him. I like him because he is a very, he's this stolid pillar of normalcy in this situation. He's got a wife, he's got a couple of kids, he goes to soccer games and he deals with, you know, he deals with homicide and that makes him a very, I don't know, he's a very interesting character to me because he's, he's very real. Um, but I, I, I constantly compare him to like a football player in body and then like something marriage counselor, a kindergarten teacher or something like that and the other. And he doesn't spend a lot of time in the whole story, but he's important. I look forward to uh, reading that next bit because he gets to be there. <laughs>